0: Well, let's turn together this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 20. We will be considering together this morning verses 24 through the end of the chapter, verse 42. And this is part B, if you will, of the sermon that was begun last week, or of the story. I guess really they're separate sermons, but <clears throat> taking the, the two halves of this lengthy story um, in, in different in different sermons, <clears throat> excuse me. So 1 Samuel chapter 20, we're going to begin reading this morning in verse 24. Before we read, let's pray. Oh Lord our God, uh, we do pray now for the ministry of your word in our hearts. God, that you would open it before us, that you would illuminate it to us, God, that you would Plant it deep within us that we might be sanctified and made into the image of Christ our Lord. God, I pray for the word not only here but all across the coast as pastors and Christians as they open it together and they read from it and study it. Lord, I pray that you would do a miracle in giving us wisdom and understanding. I'd give light where there is dark. Open our ears and our eyes where they are closed, that we might see and know you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, First Samuel chapter 20. Let's begin reading in verse 24. So David, himself, so David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman... Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing, only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy, and he said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap, and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Uh, The question this morning uh, that I would like to pose to you as we begin to consider this text together is what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to give up on account of faithfulness? On account of faithfulness, what are you willing to give up? In 1517, a man by the name of Martin Luther, who is the father of the Protestant Reformation in Wittenberg, uh, Drafted 95 theses or uh, statements of concern and detraction uh, that he saw as the errors of the Roman Catholic Church of his day. And so, according to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and his uh, being constrained by Scripture, he takes these 95 theses and he nails them to the door of the church at Wittenberg, declaring. Uh, once and for all, for anyone who could or would see his position and understanding of God's word and his uh, descent from the Catholic Church. And that became, uh, the, that, that was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, fast forward a few years, there, there there was an edict or a ban put upon these 95 theses. They were determined to be evil and wicked. And of course the church saw them as so, and so they, they they banned them and told anyone that, that they were not allowed to possess them or read them or entertain them, and naturally then the author, Martin Luther, uh, the author of these 95 theses was under condemnation, and the dealings uh, with the the 95 Theses, or the enforcement, if you will, of the ban on these 95 Theses, it fell not to the church necessarily, but to the secular authorities. And in that day, there was a lot of overlap between the church authorities and the secular authorities, but it fell primarily to the secular authorities. And so on April 18th, 1521, Luther was ordered to appear before the Diet of Worms. It was a, a council, a general assembly that was going to be held in order to determine... Uh, what was to be done uh, to Martin Luther and, quite frankly, to call him to recant his convictions that he had pinned and put upon the door. And uh, Johann Eck, speaking on behalf of the empire, uh, he calls Martin Luther a heretic, and he lays out all of his writings, including the 95 Theses, and he calls for him to recant his teachings... Uh, on Scripture and particularly salvation. And so Martin Luther ultimately asks for some time to consider and to pray. And when he comes and provides a response, this is what he says. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. And then some debate these words, but it is widely believed that he then says, Here I stand, I can do no other, may God help me, amen. And so he stood before the authorities, and he declared his Faithfulness to God and to His Word, and friends, ultimately, this faithfulness would cost Martin Luther his life. This is one of many stories that I could tell you this morning um, of the, the martyrs of our faith and of the Christian Church over the years of redemptive history. Um, and you know, we we live in a relatively safe time as Christians, don't we? A minute. our our faithfulness to the Lord and to his word and to one another, it it costs us very little to be quite frank and our faithfulness to the gospel and to, uh, taking it to the world, even as dangerous as that can be relative to other times. And according to God's providence and redemptive history and in the history of his people, it costs us relatively very little, um, but, but but are we willing to give, to give up things if, if we had to? Are we willing to give up our freedoms and our conveniences and our comforts? Uh, are we willing to give up our lives if necessary in order that we might be found faithful? I think that's an important question. And to some degree, that is going to be the thrust of the second half of the story that we consider this morning. If you were with us last week, then you know that... It has now come to be known that Saul is seeking David's life on account of his uh, jealousy and his desire that he not take over his kingdom, and he has built a cabinet and has made clear to them his intentions to pursue David, and that pursuit has begun. And so Jonathan, uh, the, the king's son, Saul's son, has... Maybe it maybe initially was not fully convinced as David came to him and wanted to know why his father was seeking to kill him. And so they devised a plan according to the covenant relationship that they had. David turned to Jonathan and sort of flung himself on the covenant promises that existed between them for blessing and protection. And uh, Jonathan and David build a plan so, so that Jonathan can go to his father in David's absence and ascertain. Uh, the depth of his father's anger and desire to kill David. And then depending on what he, uh, what he, what he receives and ascertains, he's going to return to David who is just beyond the gates and hiding. And he's going to look as if he is... Uh, practicing with his bow and arrow, and, they, and he's going to communicate to David, uh, either to the positive or to the negative, that yes or no, my father does indeed intend to kill you so as to protect him and give him an opportunity to flee and to protect his life and to save him. Um, and so we saw last time that that plan has been made uh, and, and, and a, a, a good number of things about that story, but mainly... That David is trusting, not in Jonathan on account of his friendship, but David, but David really is trusting in the reality of the covenant. And, and so that opened up a, a good discussion for us about what a covenant is and why this covenant existed between them and why uh, we have certain covenant commitments and relationships and we learn something about those covenants and how they ultimately point to the covenant that God has made with us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, and so the, the the point was and is... That when we are at wit's end, and when we're at the end of our rope, and when we have nowhere to turn, and when we flee for our life, and when our life is in danger, we must, we must fall upon the promises of the covenant. Amen. Uh, the covenant that God has made with us, and the promises that flow to us because of that covenant. What we're going to see this time, then, as we pick up the second half of that story, is simply the outworking of that covenant. They had this friendship, this covenant relationship that God had made as he knit their souls together. And uh, David turns to Jonathan on account of this covenant relationship, and they devised this plan. And so now we're going to see the plan put into action. And then, more pointedly, we're going to look at and consider the consequences that this plan had. So the first thing I want us to consider, at least the first aspect of this story, is something of Saul's anger. It's actually a bit peculiar Uh, If you notice in the text, the the, the scene begins to unfold. So David goes and does just as they had had determined and hides himself in the field. And then when the new moon came and it came time for the feast in the court of the king, the king comes to sit in his place and uh, the other authorities and rulers come to sit in their places so that it tells us uh, that Jonathan sat opposite the king and Abner sat beside the king so they're all in their right places. But David, who is... Then a part of the king's court, we've seen in this story, you know, as much as Saul hated him, he could not but need him in God's providence, a bit of irony there. So David is in the court of the king, and his seat, however, at the table at, at this feast of new moon is empty. So then you see in verse 26, at first Saul is not angry. It says, yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, surely something's happened to him, he is not clean. What, what, this business about not being clean, you can go back and refer to Leviticus and you can go to the ceremonial law. We're not going to rehearse that on account of time. But the king's assumption is that David has in some way uh, defiled himself. Uh, maybe, maybe, he was, uh, maybe he was around a dead body or something of that nature and ceremonially was unclean and um, he was unable to come and attend the feast. So he's making an excuse for him, a reasonable excuse. And then in verse 27, look at what happens. But on the second day... After the new moon, his place was empty again. And so Saul's demeanor changes a bit. He looks to Jonathan, his son, and he says, Why is the son of Jesse not come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered him and said, Well, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. And so he's going to give him the story that they originally came up with. Let me, let me make a note, side note here. A lot of people want to know about, was this right or wrong? They're lying. And they are. And, and whether it's right or wrong, I'm, I, I, I don't know. It's never right to lie. I would simply encourage you to this end. The Bible here is, is being historical, not prescriptive. Nowhere does it tell us to go and do likewise, does it? It's just simply telling us the events that unfolded and how God used those events according to his purposes and plan. So don't, don't spend too much time trying to deal with the things that we're not given to deal with. It's not, nowhere does it tell us to go and do just like Jonathan and David did, and I've tried to encourage you with that multiple times as we've seen these stories. We're not to go and be a Jonathan or a David. We're not Jonathan or David. Uh, God was doing a particular thing among some particular people in this particular time, and God's word is simply recording the historical facts so as to teach us about his working and dealing with them and how even, even if this was a failure on their part, God used it for his glory. So be encouraged by that reality. But anyway, so Jonathan then tells his dad the story that they have come up with together, where David has uh, apparently asked leave of absence to go to this uh, sacrifice that his clan is going to make. His brothers have demanded that he come and be a part. Uh, and he has requested a leave of absence that would have accounted for these multiple days. And uh, the king does it by it. And so then you see something of his anger in verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled. And it's very interesting, isn't it, against Jonathan. Not really, I mean, he was angry at David, but he had been angry at David. Um, Apparently the king had reason, or at least in his own mind he had reason, or he thought he had reason, to expect or demand David's participation in this meal. And so he's angry about his absence, but when it records something of the anger that is kindled inside of him, it says that Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, and his language is... Pretty interesting, uh, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know what you have cho- that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Let's, what's he talking about his mama for? Um, it, 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 but the point is the issue of shame. Uh, he is speaking of the depth, uh, uh, the magnitude of Jonathan's sin against the king, if you will. And that sin would have brought shame not only upon himself, but because of its magnitude and depth, it would have brought shame upon his immediate family, would have brought shame upon his mother. And so he's speaking about uh, the shame that she would or uh, should experience on account of his stupidity, at least from Saul's perspective. And then he declares in verse 31, "...for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth..." Neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Neither you uh, nor your kingdom. I mean, did he have reason to be so angry? Uh, I, I'm, I'm not really sure. Uh, should we be interested in parsing out whether or not David and Jonathan should be held accountable for their lie? Uh, I, I'm not. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, no, that's not the point of the story. Uh, Have they sinned in any way? I I don't know. The, The Scripture doesn't tell us. But at the end of the day, he is angry, and the expression of his anger is very telling. Not so much about Saul, I don't think, as it is about Jonathan. But he uses this language, and I quote, Neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. As he's speaking to his son, remember his son would have been the prince. His son would have been heir to the throne neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. I don't know if he had some plan or intention in his heart, uh, some plan or intention in his heart that there would be another uh, successor to the throne, if that was his intention, or maybe deep down in his heart, Saul realized what God had declared, that you will not be my king, and my word and my glory have departed from you, and I have rejected you. And your son shall not reign. I think maybe there is in some sense in his language here, neither you nor your kingdom in the midst of his hot anger. I think he's so angry at Jonathan because he's looking for a place to blame his own sin. Think about this. In some sense, I think what he's saying to Jonathan is, I am going to take from you what you have taken from me. Because by helping David... Who Jonathan knows and understands, and maybe some, maybe in some way Saul knows and understands that this is god 's appointed king, that this is the one uh, all of the jealousy that Saul has has been directed to right all of this anger that he seeks his life because he knows that he knows that he is a danger to the throne. But rather than look within himself and be willing to say, you know, I'm responsible for my own sin and my own rejection of God and an unwillingness to listen to him. Maybe he's looking at his son Jonathan and looking for a place to, 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 to cast the guilt. And he says, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. I'm going I'm to take from you that thing that you are helping to take from me. See, Saul might have been ignorant of God's power and his plan and all of those things, but he was not ignorant of God's obvious blessings and provision for David. It was clear. It was the source of his anger. Neither you nor your kingdom, he says, shall be established. Now, this brings us to the second point, because the interesting thing about uh, his language here is how it has absolutely no effect on Jonathan. Jonathan and you must you must feel something of the severity of this this is the crowned prince to the kingship over israel an entire nation he is destined at least according to his lineage to be the The most powerful man in all of the country and among all of his people. And his father, the king, has just declared that neither you nor your kingdom shall be established on account of this sin that you have committed in your desire to choose David, the son of Jesse, and to help him and to put yourself out for him. But Jonathan does not seem concerned, does he? Jonathan doesn't seem concerned about himself Or his kingdom. He doesn't seem motivated by this threat to his own well-being and standing. There's a wonderful lesson here and there's a beautiful picture, isn't there, of humility and self-denial. And we've already seen this in Jonathan on multiple occasions. But if you remember particularly, when Jonathan comes to befriend little David... And they make this covenant together. Jonathan, I think, understanding of something of God's providence in his life, that no, I'm not going to be king, and yes, you are going to be king. Rather than be bitter and sort of motivated by his own ambition to to preserve himself and to do whatever was necessary to get rid of David and to to, to, uh, secure the kingdom, he befriends him and he makes a covenant with him. To protect him and to befriend him and to be loyal to him and to be faithful to him. And then he goes so far as to give him his cloak. The the utter humility we've seen. And now, as he is suffering on account of his faithfulness to David, at the hand of his father, his father's only threat in his anger is the things that you have most desired, at least from Saul's perspective. Jonathan, the things you want most and the things you stand ready to receive and the things that will give you the greatest position and authority and wealth, they will not be yours. And Jonathan is not. He's not moved by that threat. He's not motivated by what is best for him or for his kingdom or for his posterity. We've seen this sort of uh, we've seen this sort of self-denial in Jonathan time and again, and we see it here in this text, where he is going to be characterized by faithfulness. But what was it that he was committed to? How is it that you think he was so willing to, oh, you can take my me and my kingdom and declare that they will not be established, and it doesn't mean anything to me because... It's not really about me, and it's not really about my kingdom, and it's not really about my desires, and it's not really about my ambitions. What was it that Jonathan was committed to that would enable him to express this type of uh, self-denial? Well, there's a few things that we see in the text that are made clear. Beginning of verse 32, we see that he was committed to righteousness and justice. What's right? As a matter of integrity, look at verse 32. So his father begins to tell him these things. As long as David lives on the earth, neither you or your kingdom will be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. In other words, if you want this curse that I've made not to come to pass, bring him to me and I'm going to kill him. All right? right, you're wrong. Do away with your sin. Look at, look at Jonathan here, verse 32. So Jonathan's answer to his father is this. Why should he be put to death for what has he done? This is the second time that Jonathan has come before the king and argued apologetically for his salvation and preservation even to his own detriment he's not arguing with him over dad please don't take my kingdom you don't understand what you're doing you don't understand the situation he's not he's not trying to fix it we see initially that he is committed faithful to righteousness and justice look at what he says david has done no wrong and it would be unjust for you to kill him that's what he's telling the king It would be a sin not for me to preserve his life. Listen to what he's saying. It's a sin for you to take it. It's a sin for you to hunt him. You don't tell the king that kind of thing. Not if you have any concern for your own well-being, you don't. But Jonathan's concern was not for himself. At least in 32, we see he had some concern for righteousness and justice. And as we said a moment ago, this concern is driven also by his faithfulness to his friendship. He took his friendship with David very seriously, but it's more than that. I think it's his commitment to his own word as a matter of integrity. Remember, he's doing exactly for David what he promised to do. But to take it even a step farther and to bring back the point of last week's lesson in this text, ultimately his commitment, like David's, is to the covenants the covenant commitments that he has made to him. Not not just his word, but they covenanted together before God Almighty to do certain things for one another and to have a certain type of relationship. And friends, do you see that he is more interested in keeping those covenant commitments and upholding righteousness and justice and being a man of integrity and faithfulness, even if it cost him everything. I think Martin Luther knew something of that cost. Jonathan knew all about the cost of faithfulness. Jonathan knew all about the cost of discipleship. And so I think, as I alluded to just a moment ago, I see, and I think we should see in Jonathan, two things here. First, we see an understanding of what the goal of life is. An understanding of the goal of life. Think about it. How could the crown prince, the king to be, the heir of the throne exhibits such faithfulness to his friend because Jonathan knew that it was God's kingdom. You see? Jonathan knew that it was God's kingdom and he was supremely satisfied with God's providence and with God's provision and with God's kingship. He was not motivated by self-preservation He was motivated by God exaltation. And he had a profound confidence and trust in the Lord God Almighty. His trust was not in Saul, the king, but his confidence was in God, the king. And see, he understood that life, as Dr. Davis says, life does not consist in achieving your goals, but in fulfilling your promises hear that this morning the goal of your life is not in achieving your goals but in keeping your word in fulfilling your promises and i think something of this goal to life jonathan understood and second and closely tied to that first we also see in jonathan a reflection then of the covenant keeping faithfulness of god don't we A reflection of the covenant-keeping faithfulness of God. As Jonathan knew the great cost of faith and faithfulness, he was willing, you know, we see him in this picture, willingly setting himself aside and making himself nothing, enduring the wrath of his father in order to keep the covenant he made to save the one that he loves. On the one hand, his willingness to suffer in order to be found faithful should grip your heart this morning and convict it deeply for how easily we are swayed from keeping our commitments and being faithful to our covenant promises that we have made because it gets difficult or it gets harder because it might cost us something very small. And on the one hand, his faithfulness and willingness to suffer should grip your heart this morning. But friends, that story that I just recounted of the one who would set himself aside and make himself nothing, endure the wrath of his father in order to keep his covenant promises to save his loved ones, it should sound very familiar to you. At least I hope it does. It should ring loudly in your ears. It's not a perfect picture, is it? But it's a sufficient and a beautiful picture. Of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would set himself aside and, as the scripture said, make himself of no reputation and take upon himself human flesh, setting aside certain aspects of his deity, endure the wrath of his Father against mine and your sins in order to keep the covenant promise he made in eternity to save the ones that he loves. That's a familiar story. And this picture is sufficient to reflect that reality. So I think Jonathan understands the goal of life, that it's not about him and his ambition and his goals only, primarily. It's about that of God. And, and, and then also tied to that, we see a reflection of the covenant faithfulness, the covenant promise-keeping and humility that God shows toward us in Christ. And friends, when we understand this picture, then it helps us to understand what's actually really peculiar about the end of this passage. I don't know if you felt the, the oddness of it when we read it out loud together. Let's go, to the, let's go to the very end of the passage. Look at verse 42. After they shoot the arrows and he communicates to Jonathan, I mean to David, and they send the boy off back into the city with the weapons... And Jonathan and David come together and weep with one another. Verse 42 says Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. Go in peace? My father wants to kill you. Go in peace. Your life is in grave danger. Go in peace. Everything is so far from peaceful for you, but go in peace. See, we have to understand the picture, as I said a moment ago, to understand these words. His directive, to, his directive to David is not that everything for you will be peaceful, but that in this covenant relationship, there is peace to be found. In other words, Jonathan's saying to David that, it, that if in nowhere else in life you find peace and peacefulness, Between me and you and the God that binds us together, there is peace. A peace that you can bank on. A peace that will never fade. A peace that will anchor your soul. Where you can always return to. In the midst of a torrential, peaceless world and life and situation, there is peace to be found between me and you. And so he was, he was commanding and encouraging David to go into the midst of the storm, knowing that between the two of them there was a peace that he could hold on to. And that peace was covenant peace. It was covenant peace. It was peace that broke all boundaries, that sacrificed everything for faithfulness. And friends, this is the only kind of peace that's promised for Christians. This is Christian peace, isn't it? This is the peace of God's word. For the word of God tells us that we will indeed suffer in this age. Multiple times the word of God commands us that if we are not hated by all men and by all nations, that his purposes for our life are not yet complete. That we must suffer the loss of all things, even unto death as Christ our Savior did. That we will not walk a different path than the one he trod for is a servant greater than his master and Jesus encourages us with knowing that as they have persecuted you so too they persecuted me before you why because the promise of the christian life is not of peacefulness when Jesus came born in the manger and the angels sang on high glory to god in the highest and peace on earth they did not mean that he came to bring a panacea of generalized peace there is not peace on earth There's not peace in our families. There's not peace in our communities and in our country. There's not peace in the world. But there's peace in our hearts, isn't there? There's peace between us and God. There's covenant peace. The word of God prepares us for the suffering of the age, for the cost of our faithfulness and discipleship, for the enmity with the world that we will feel. But even when these things are not peaceful, When our life is in great turmoil, like David, we can go in peace. Because one greater than Jonathan has made us his friend. And he has covenanted and promised to save us. And that covenant promise has come at great cost to himself. Ultimately, he would endure the wrath of his father that was directed toward our sin to save us and bring us Peace. The only peace that we can hold on to that we can bank upon is covenant peace. And the story of Jonathan and David is a picture that should encourage our hearts with that reality. The question this morning is, does your faith cost you anything? I mean, friends, we're fixing to move to a facility that may cost you some comfort or some convenience. It's not about, our, our life is not about our comfort and convenience. Um, to be known as a faithful Christian at work, it may cost you something of your reputation or position. To build a family that honors God and to be faithful to his word, it may cost you a great deal. Friends, no matter the cost and no matter how uh, fleeting peace may seem, we have a peace with our friend Christ, the friend that sticks closer than a brother who has brought us by adoption into his kingdom with whom we are joint heirs of the covenant promises that God has made in him. We've been reconciled with God, and friends, that's a peace that passes understanding. It's a peace that we can hold on to. It's, it's how we can say, as we sung a moment ago, and we'll sing in a few minutes more, it is well with my soul. When the storm rages, it is well. Though Satan should buff it and trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. That he's come and he's made us at peace with God. Friends, does your faith cost you anything? Jonathan's faith and faithfulness, his willingness to keep his covenant commitments, cost him greatly, and ultimately the covenant faithfulness of God toward us in Christ Jesus cost immeasurably more. On account then of the example of Jonathan, and on account of the covenant faithfulness of God toward us in Christ, let us go in peace, even when all is not peaceful not striving for ourselves and our kingdom, but humbly setting ourselves aside and our ambitions aside and our comforts aside that we might follow and serve the purposes of our covenant Redeemer. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, thank you for the wonderful blessings of life and salvation, of protection and provision, of peace that you have brought to us in Christ. Lord, when we have nowhere else to turn, I pray very simply that we would uh, learn from David to turn to covenant promises. Particularly those covenant promises that you have made. God, may we be found faithful. Help us to count the cost and consider it low. Encourage our hearts to be willing to set ourselves aside and our ambitions and our desires and our comforts and conveniences aside. For whatever the cost, knowing you is worth it. We thank you for the peace that you've made between us and yourself by the blood and the righteousness of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.